He graduated uh, law school in the 1940s, and after he graduated law school, uh, Nelson Mandela would spend the next 20 years of his life uh, fighting against apartheid in, in South Africa. And, and during those 20 years uh, following law school, he would be arrested numerous times uh, for protesting the racial segregation that had been entrenched in South Africa uh, for many, many, many years. Um, and so after being imprisoned time and time again, after protesting you know, racial injustice and racial segregation, apartheid and all of that, in 1962, uh, Nelson Mandela was arrested and imprisoned uh, for plans to overthrow the government. And he would spend the next 27 years of his life in prison. And you can only imagine, you know, prison is, is never going to be easy. In prison, I can only imagine, would just be increased, just incredibly horrible. But you can only imagine spending 27 years of your life uh, in prison because you fought injustice and you are now suffering injustice yourself. So he was in prison for the next 27 years. And at the age of 72, Nelson Mandela found himself to be the oldest political prisoner in the world. Uh, the winds of change were already beginning to blow and, and there was mounting you know, international political pressure um, that was calling for Nelson Mandela to be released after 27 years. He's 72 years old after all. And um, so that's what happened. Uh, he was released after 27 years, at 72 years of age. And you would think at 72, you're, you're kind of beginning you know, the end stage of your life, but not necessarily uh, for Nelson Mandela. He would go on to become the first president of South Africa. He would lead the country uh, to become a multiracial uh, democracy. Uh, he would also win the Nobel Peace Prize. And, and he wrote a book, it's a great book, uh, called A Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, he reflects back on the day that he was released from prison when he was 72 years old after 27 years in prison. And, and this, is, this is what he wrote. He says, as I walked out of the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and my hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. In other words, he understood after 27 years, he had enough wisdom to say, you know what? If I don't forgive what needs to be forgiven, if I don't let go what needs to be let go of, it's never going to let go of me. And if I continue to hold on to what I need to let go of, not only is it gonna hold on to me, but it's going to hold me back. And if I don't leave behind what I need to leave behind, there's gonna be no such thing as moving forward. He says, as I'm leaving, there's some things I need to leave behind because if I don't leave behind what I need to leave behind, if I don't let go of what I need to let go of, if I don't forgive what needs to be forgiven, I'm gonna walk out of prison, but I'm still going to be in prison. Uh, Lewis Meads, uh, he captured the same sentiment um, when he wrote about forgiveness and he wrote so much about forgiveness. But Lewis Meads, he, he kind of takes what Nelson Mandela was saying and, and he captures it when he says, to forgive is to set the prisoner free and to discover you were the prisoner. And the point is that forgiveness is freeing. Choosing to forgive is liberating. Uh, when you choose to forgive, when I choose to forgive, when we choose to give forgiveness, it's like a burden that's being taken away. Uh, it's like an anchor that we're laying down. It's like shackles that we're choosing to leave behind. And whenever we choose to forgive, it brings equilibrium. It brings spiritual equilibrium. It brings mental equilibrium. It brings equilibrium to our own physiological selves, our, our physical bodies, our physical health. It just brings equilibrium. When we choose forgiveness, it settles our mind. It soothes our soul. And when we choose to forgive, some really powerful things begin to happen in our lives. And as we talked about last week, no matter what it is and no matter who it involves, forgiveness is always right and forgiveness is always best. Forgiveness is always the right thing to do and forgiveness is always the best thing to do, no matter what. It's best for you, it's best for them, it's gonna be best for everybody. Forgiveness is always the right thing to do, it's always the best thing to do. That said, Forgiveness is not always the easy thing to do. It doesn't always come easy. And that's why we're doing this series because to hold on to unforgiveness is to remain in a prison. And to hold on to unforgiveness is to be tortured on some level. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the New Testament teaches. That if we don't let go what we need to let go of, 
It's going to continue to hold on to us, and it's going to continue to hold us back. And until we leave behind some things that need to be left behind, we're not going to be able to move forward. And so when it comes to forgiveness, it may be always right and always best, but it's not always easy to do. And again, that's why we're talking about it. Back in week one, we talked about forgiving God because sometimes God disappoints us and sometimes God betrays our expectation. And for some of us, we need to forgive God. And if you weren't here, you need to go back and you just need to listen to that. Last week, we talked about forgiving others, about letting them out of the prison, no longer trying to make them pay for what they said or what they did or what they didn't do. That Jesus, he taught, that the vertical relationship that we have with God and the horizontal relationships that we have with people, they are placed on the same plane of importance. And that somehow our relationship with God is all wrapped up, knotted up, connected to our relationship with people. And when we receive forgiveness from God, we are then supposed to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. And if we have received mercy and grace from God, how can we withhold that mercy and grace from other people in our lives who may have hurt us or disappointed us or betrayed us or let us down in some way. So we talked about forgiving others. Today, we're gonna to talk about forgiving ourselves because forgiving God can be hard. And some of us, we've been angry at God before and we learned to forgive God once upon a time. So forgiving God can be hard. Uh, oftentimes, forgiving other people can be harder because they feel closer. They're more visible. God, he, he's invisible. God's a bit more inconspicuous. But we see people on social media, we bump into people in town, you know, we see folks, we hear their name, you know, and forgiving other people sometimes can be harder than forgiving God because they're just up close and personal. But as we're gonna talk about today, sometimes forgiving ourselves is the hardest of all. That it is easier to forgive God and it's easier to forgive others at times more so than it is to forgive our selves. Because sometimes the last person that we give mercy and grace to is us. Sometimes the last person that we extend mercy and grace to is ourselves. We are gonna be quick to give mercy and grace to strangers, to family, and to friends. But for some of us, the last person we think about giving grace and mercy to is ourself. It's the person in the mirror. And, and, and here's the deal. As long as we refuse grace and mercy to ourself, as long as we refuse to show grace and mercy to ourselves, as long as we continue to beat ourselves up and beat ourselves down, beat ourselves up and beat ourselves down, we lock ourselves in a prison. We remain in a prison that shuts us off from peace, from joy, from freedom, from the abundant life, the overflowing, rich and satisfying life that Jesus said that he came to give every single one of us. As long as we cling to unforgiveness when it comes to me and when it comes to you, as long as we refuse to forgive self, as long as I refuse to forgive me and you refuse to forgive you, you are living in a perpetual prison and there's gonna be a torture that's associated with that. It's gonna rob you of some of the things that you want most in your life and out of life. Now, the reason that many of us struggle with forgiving ourselves and the reason that oftentimes the person that we have the greatest beef with, the person that we're most offended at, the person that we're most angry at, disappointed in, it's not God and it's not other people. It's actually, if we're just honest about it, it's ourself. We're angry at ourselves. We're disappointed with ourselves. And we're carrying around this constant offense, this nagging, gnawing, all-consuming feeling that we sometimes don't even realize who it's directed to. And it's actually directed at ourselves. And the reason that we struggle with this and the reason we have to learn how to deal with this is because we all have regrets. Every single one of us. We all have stories we wish we couldn't tell. We all have memories we wish we could forget. We've all done things we wish we could undo and we've all said things that wish, we wish we could unsay. That's just part of living. That's just part of life. I'm convinced you can't live life to the full and not accumulate some regrets along the way because if you're living life all out, if you're living life to the full, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna misstep. You're gonna make some wrong turns. You're gonna fall down. It's gonna happen. And as you try to live life to the full, there's gonna be regrets. You have them, I have them. When it comes to regrets, we've all got them. 
That's just part of life. You can't live life and not accumulate some regrets along the way. Now, for some of us, our regrets are relational. Uh, Once upon a time, a relationship ended, it blew up, it failed. And you know what? We realized it was our fault. We realized the responsibility was on us, that we were to blame, we were the cause. And it just, it gnaws at us. We wish it wouldn't have happened. We wish we could undo it. We wish we could unsay some things, but we just can't. And now it's a regret. Uh, For some of us, maybe for you, you had the opportunity to make a relationship that had been wrong for a lot of years. You had the opportunity to make it right. But yet when you had the opportunity to make things right, you just couldn't let it go. You just couldn't leave it behind. And because of it, one day it became too late to make things right. Things had changed, someone passed away, someone moved away. And now you're left with the regret of that because some of our regrets are relational. Some of our regrets are financial. You knew better, but you didn't do better. You made some bad choices, you didn't plan, you didn't invest, you didn't put away. And now you're kind of suffering because of it. And other people are suffering the fallout. And there's some financial regret. If you could go back and if you could undo it, you would. And if you could make different choices, you would. Uh, Some of our regrets are tied up to bad habits. Uh, It's the abuse of alcohol or the the abuse of drugs. And because, you know, you started to abuse alcohol, you started to abuse drugs, I mean, it just destroyed some things. It destroyed some good things. It destroyed some beautiful things. You never meant for it to become a problem, but it became a problem and it became a big problem and it's a regret. It's just something that you still carry around with you. Uh, For some people, it's a parental regret. There's some moms and dads that if you had to do it all over again, you'd go back and you'd do it different and you talk to each other about it and and you wish you could go back and you you, kind of wish that you would have, you know, done things different in that season of life or you would have put a little less emphasis on this and a little more emphasis on that and and now you look at your son or daughter and and they've kind of gone off in a different direction than you would have them go and, and in some ways they've derailed their life and they've made some really irresponsible and some really harmful choices and you feel responsible for that. You feel that and you would to God that you could go back because now you're blaming yourself. You're beating yourself up and you're beating yourself down and you just think that if you could go back and undo it, none of this would be the way it is today and so you just have a lot of parental regret and these regrets just go on and on and on and on and the reason is, is because we live life. And we do things that we didn't intend to do and we do things wrong and we do things that we thought we would never do. And maybe that's you. You've done some things that you just, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you would have never thought that you were capable of that. You would never thought that you would have chosen to do that. Uh, We've all disappointed other people. Uh, We've all disappointed ourselves. And truth be told, for some of us, the the hardest person of all to disappoint is ourselves. We've all made wrong turns. At times, let's just be honest, we've, we've crashed and burned. Uh, we knew better, but we did it anyway. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I feel like I'm talking to self-righteous Pharisees today. You're looking at me like a, like a deer looking at headlights. Uh, I, I mean, come on. I, I mean, you knew better, but you did it anyway. Of course, you, don't, you can lie all you want. I know you, and, and, and I, I know that you're the same as I am. Of course you knew better, but you did it anyway. You knew that you should have said yes, but you said no. You knew that you should have said no, but you said yes. And it's like, oh, why? Why is that the case? Why do we do that? It's just because, is it just because I suck that bad? Am I just that horrible of a human being? It, why is it that I keep doing that? Why do I keep saying I'm gonna do that, but I do that? Why is it that I say I'm never gonna do that again and I do it again? Why is it? And that's a good question. Why is it? And I, I got the answer for you. It's because we are all sinners who sin. We're all sinners who sin. Every single one of us, no exceptions. We are all sinners who sin. Why do we sin? We're sinners. What do sinners do? They sin. We all sin because we're sinners. I I just want you to take a moment, look around the room, you know what you see? Sinners, sinners. We have sinners of all ages. I, I mean, just take a look. Some of the, some of the more gray-haired, white-haired, distinguished sinners that we have among us, they've been sinning for years. Oh my goodness. I mean, they are so good at it. Some of y'all just getting started with sin. 
Some, some of us, we, we're kind of about in the middle of the game. We're about halftime. And, you know, it's like, but we're sinners of all ages, sinners of all socioeconomic backgrounds, sinners of all different types of education. I mean, that, that's, we're all sinners. Why do we sin? Because we're sinners. What do sinners do? They sin. That, that's the way it is. And in life, listen to this, in life, here's what the scripture teaches. In life, as long as we have life, we are going to remain to be sinners with a predisposition to sin. We have a predisposition to sin. That means that we're born sinners. That's what the New Testament teaches. We're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. And so whenever you wonder, well, why do I keep making wrong turns? Why do I keep falling down? Why do I keep failing? Why the crash and burn? Why do I say I'm not going to and I do? Why does sin so, come so easy to me? Because we're sinners. And as Paul said, we've all sinned. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So that means regardless of our story, no matter what your past looks like, no matter how you were raised, no matter what your heritage may be, all of that stuff notwithstanding, the one thing that we all have in common with each other is that we are sinners. And the one thing that we have with, in common with every other person on the planet is that we are sinners. Now, I'm gonna give you some facts about sin and I'm gonna tell you a story and then we're gonna wrap up. But let me give you another fact about sin and sinners. Sin doesn't come in sizes. Sinners do, but sins don't. Now you got skinny sinners and mid-sized sinners and plus sinners, and, and you know, you just got sinners of all sizes, but sins, sins don't come in sizes. There's no such thing as big sinners, big sins and little sins, and because there's no such thing as big sins and little sins, there's no such thing as a big sinner or little sinner in, in, in the sight of God and the cosmic way of thinking about things. It means there's no hierarchy of sin. Uh, no one sin or group of sins separate us more from God than another. We're born sinners, so we're born separated from God. So it's not one sin that separates us from God or a certain list of sins that separate us from God. And, and just because it's a certain list of sins, it doesn't mean that we're more separated from God. Sin, just sin, is what separates us from God. And sin, just sin, is what puts us in the need of a savior. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, this is what he taught in his letter. He says, if you break one part of the law, just one part, any part, little part, big part, mid-sized part. If you break one part of the law, you have broken the entire law because sin is sin. Now, different sins may bring with it different consequences, but in the cosmic scheme, sin is sin. And, and, and listen, don't forget this, and this, this is good. God doesn't have to work harder to forgive certain sins than he does others. God doesn't have to try really, 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 really hard to forgive a certain group of sins, and it's kind of, you know, real easy for him over here. God doesn't fly into a rage over certain sins while he kind of cracks up and winks at and kind of thinks, you know, these, these sins over here, they're just cute, they're no big deal. That, that's, not, that's not what we find. We find a God who's holy. We find a God who's righteous. We find a God who is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, and he hates sin. And so why does God hate sin? Well, I'm glad you asked, because you can't sin without harming you and harming those around you. You just can't do it. Sin is always gonna harm you, and sin's always gonna harm those around you. Sin always steals, it always kills, it always destroys, always. It may not feel like it, it may not even immediately look like it, but wherever there's sin, it's stealing, it's killing, it's destroying. That's how it works. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy influence. It can destroy peace of mind. It can unsettle our soul. It can wreck our health. It seeks to steal our future, squander our potential, derail our life ambition or life vision or life purpose. That's how sin is. It steals, it kills, it destroys. That's why sin is a big deal. No matter what sin it is, sin is a big deal. It promises fulfillment, but it leaves us empty. It promises happiness, but it leaves us miserable. And here's what sin does. It tries to get us to fixate on what's happening today and what we want today. All the while, when we're not paying attention, sin is doing its best to rob us of what we really want, truly want, and truly need tomorrow. That's how sin works. Here's another fact about sin. There's no sin God isn't capable of forgiving or willing to forgive. Not a single one. 
Whatever sin you can come up with. I, I could say, hey, let's take the next 20 minutes and come up with the hairiest, darkest, dirtiest, most horrible, baddest, worstest sin that we could ever think of. And you can't come up with one and I can't come up with one that God can't forgive, that God's not willing to forgive and that God doesn't want to forgive. That means that you and I, we can't out God's capacity to forgive. That's just the fact of the matter. May feel threatening, may want us to you know, raise a hand and say, well about what if and what about that? There's no ability that you have or that I have to sin that outdoes God's capacity to forgive our sin. There's no sin outside the reach of God's grace. No, not one. Ever how far out of a sin that you can think of, God's grace goes further still. And no matter how deep of a pit and how muddy and how horrible and how septic and how nasty and how repulsive and how abominable, you know, abominable that you think it might be, God's grace will go deeper still. Nothing is outside the reach of God's grace, nothing. And here's what that means. There's not a single, single, there's not a single one of your sins greater than another sin. And none of your sins are greater than God's grace. That means that when your sin comes up against God's grace, God's grace wins every single time. That means that when Jesus died for my sin and Jesus died for our sin, he died for all of them, past, present, and future. And don't miss this. You, some of you may need to write this down. When Jesus died for our sins, he died for our sins, past, present, and future. That means that every single one of our sins have already been paid for. Every single one of your sins have already been paid for. So here's the question. Why are you trying to pay off what's already paid? If God's willing to give you grace, why would you not give yourself grace? If God's willing to give you mercy, why would you not give yourself mercy? If God's willing to forgive you, why are you not willing to forgive you? If God has paid for every one of your sins, why are you trying to pay them off still? Why are you trying to pay that thing off from last year or from that season of life? Why are you still trying to pay certain sins off? Why are you trying to still get in good with God and get God to love you again and get back into his family? I mean, really, seriously. Can you imagine going down to the bank next month and trying to pay your mortgage and the person at the bank says, well, I got, you know, I got news for you. Somebody's paid off your mortgage. I mean, would you still try to force them to take the check? It's like, well, I don't feel good about this. I, you know, I don't know, I, I just don't feel right about it. Take this check anyway, I wanna pay on it. And like, no, it's paid for. No, I, I, I gotta feel like I, I, need to, I need to do something. And they're like, what, are you, are you serious? No, that's not what you would do. You know what you do? You walk outside, you'd be like, this is incredible! This is great, you'd call your husband, you'd call your wife. You'd be so excited, you'd tell everybody at work, come to church, find out all your sins have been paid for, and it's like, It's like, what else you got? <laughs> and I'm just gonna tell you, I, I, I didn't think you would. I thought you'd be better, but you're not. I'm gonna tell you what I told me at 9.30. I'm preaching much better than how you're responding. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you. Not because it's me, but this is good news. I mean, no wonder the world looks at us and says, you know, gosh, I don't wanna be a Christian, they're miserable. Even when they hear great news, they're still, it's like they missed Metamucil that morning or something. It's like, <laughs> something's not right, something's got crossways. It's like, I don't understand. What, what are they so down about when it's such good news? Why do we settle for the dark fog of guilt and shame? Guilt that says, okay, I failed. But shame that comes along and says, you know what, I'm, I'm just a failure. That's the reason some, maybe you, it's why you don't like church that much because when you come to church, you just think about every terrible thing that you've done and that horrible thing and that season of life and oh my God, you just can't forget about it and, and you really don't think about it that much until you come to church and then you know it's like singing songs about love and mercy and grace and it's like, then you just think about it and then you can't stop thinking about it and then you just feel terrible about yourself and then you spiral back down into guilt and shame and it's just, it's just terrible. And so you pray and you pray. Some of you have asked God to forgive you for the same sin four dozen times. 
And I just picture, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I just pictured that God, our heavenly father, is sitting up there on the throne and it's like he just mutes us from time to time and he looks at the angels and says, what the heck? This is the 47th time they've asked me to forgive. I forgave them, the matter of fact, I forgave them before they even asked me. And I'm tempted, I'm tempted, Gabriel, just to send you down there and smack them on the head to say, would you knock it off? The big guy says, it's good, it's done, it's paid. So quit trying to slide us a check for what's been paid for. And that's how some of us live. That's, that's how some of us approach our faith. And we don't feel forgiven. We think that God hasn't forgiven us because we don't feel forgiven. And, and who even knows what feeling forgiven actually feels like? But, but for us, we don't think we feel forgiven. And, and we assume it's because God hasn't forgiven us. But maybe the reason we don't feel forgiven is because we haven't forgiven us. It's because I haven't forgiven me and you haven't forgiven you. And the reason I just keep on carrying what I should lay down and I keep clinging to what I should let go of and I keep holding on to what I should release is because I haven't forgiven me. Uh, Lewis Meads, I quoted him a moment ago. He talked about guilt and shame. He described it this way. He says, it's vague. It's, it's undefined heaviness that presses on our spirit. It dampens our gratitude for the goodness of life. It slackens the free flow of joy. This is exactly how it works. Guilt and shame seeps into, discolors all of our other feelings, primarily about ourselves, but about almost everyone and everything else in our lives as well. And that's the way it works. And so you beat yourself up and you beat yourself down. You beat yourself up and you beat yourself down. You go through cycles of guilt and shame and guilt and shame and you relive the failure, you relive the failure, you relive the failure, you beat yourself up, you beat yourself down. Here comes the guilt, here comes the shame. Forgive me God, forgive me God, forgive me God. You get up, you don't feel forgiven because you've not forgiven yourself and you talk to yourself like, what's wrong with me? Why would I do that? I know better. That was so dumb, that was so stupid. How could you? Why can't you be more like so-and-so? And so today I, I wanna tell you a story about somebody who had stories he wished he couldn't tell and he made choices that he probably wished he hadn't made and he had regrets and he made wrong turns and he had embarrassing moments and he had failures and big failures and his worst moments could have haunted him. His greatest failures could have defined him, but it didn't. The guy I'm gonna tell you about for the next couple moments is a guy who moved past his past. He moved past his worst moments. And the good news is that means so can you. That means so can me. So can we. It's the story of Simon Peter. And this is maybe my favorite story to tell because I've always just connected with Simon. Peter was a real go-getter. That's who he was. He's just a real go-getter. He was a bite off more than he could chew kind of guy. That's, that's how he lived his life. He, he lived with one foot over here in, in confidence. He lived with one foot over here in arrogance. And sometimes he'd stand on one leg and he was confident. Sometimes he'd stand on one leg, he was arrogant and he kind of vacillated between the two. But that's kind of how he was. He's a bit cocky. He, he was self-confident. He was sure. He was loud-mouthed. He was impetuous at times, a bit, you know, unstable. Uh, his good qualities and bad qualities were, were you know, different sides of the same coin. Um, and, and to really, to latch onto his story, we kind of have to understand him. And we kind of need to do a kind of a dive into his psychology. Uh, people, you know, who love psychological profiles, and I'm one of them, I'm kind of a, you know, one of those psychological profile junkies, but, but experts who have really done a deep dive in, into some of the disciples, Peter being one of them, have pegged Peter uh, as being an ENFP, an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs. Uh, and, and being an ENFP means that this is a guy who made s- snap decisions just based on emotion, based on intuition, kind of went with the moment, seldom thought things through. That's kind of how he was. And if you kind of you know, are that way, then you can, you can understand Peter. He's a guy of action. He he can't stand in action. He can't stand to be bored. He's got to be moving. And as long as he's moving, he doesn't need to think about what's going to happen next. He's just got to get moving. And sometimes he gets moving before he thinks. And because he gets moving before he thinks, he ends up doing some bad things and dumb things and regretful things. Uh, he's not easily intimidated. Uh, he sticks to his guns even when people disagree with him because he's confident. He thinks he's right. He thinks he's right about most things. That's just how he's wired. He's got a strong sense of responsibility, makes him stubborn, makes him a bit inflexible. 
Uh, he loved to speak up uh, because, again, he was confident. He was right more times than not. And when it came down to what you thought and what he thought, of course he was right and of course you're wrong. Now, some of you understand this because you married Peter. Some of y'all gave birth to a Peter. Some of y'all worked for Peter. Some of y'all work alongside Peter. Some of you have Peter for a sister. You know, Peter for mom, Peter for dad. This was, this was Peter, but his kryptonite. For, for those of us who are a little bit like Peter or a lot like Peter, his kryptonite was stress. His kryptonite was overwhelming you know, feelings of, of kind of just, you know, not only stress, but anxiety and all the things. And whenever Peter and people like Peter, whenever they get stressed and whenever they feel feelings of overwhelm, they can make some really dreadful, dreadful decisions. And it can lead to some really devastating regrets. Uh, that, that's kind of Peter's kryptonite. But here, here's something else. And this, is, this brings us to what we've been talking about. People like Peter, they don't handle failure well. And let me tell you why. It's because they're not used to it. They don't fail much. They really are good at figuring out a way to make things work. So they can start without thinking it all the way through, but somehow they're just able to make it happen. These, you know this person, you might be this person. But let me tell you, when people like Simon Peter fail, it eats them up. It eats them from the inside out. And not only does it drive them crazy when they disappoint other people, it drives them most crazy when they disappoint themselves. It can be hard for people like Peter to forgive other people, which is why Peter was the one who asked Jesus, hey, how many times do I have to forgive them? Seven times? But it can be most difficult for people like Peter and maybe people like you to forgive themselves because of these high standards. Matter of fact, when he first met Jesus, Jesus saw this potential. He saw Peter. Listen to what Jesus said to him in John 1. He said, you're Simon, son of John, but from here on out, you're gonna be called Cephas, which means Peter. Peter, you're a rock. You're a stone, man. You, you, can, you, you stand tall. You're impervious to things that other people, man, it cracks them, it weathers them. It reshapes them, it remolds them, but you're a rock. I can build something on you. I can do big things with you. And, and he, he just cast this incredible vision for, for Peter's future and for Peter's capacity and for Peter's potential. And he basically says, Peter, your future's bright. And I don't know, I read into scripture sometimes. I, I know we're not supposed to, but I, I don't think that, you know, sometimes it's possible not to. But, but here's how I kind of process that is that when Jesus told Peter that, Peter's like, yeah. I'm glad you noticed. I'm glad you noticed. It didn't catch Peter by surprise. This is, I, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. This is how Peter thought of himself because that's how he was. This is his personality profile. This is his put together. This is his bent. And so he's like, yeah, maybe he was, maybe he was so humble. I'm like, oh yeah, oh, God, don't, don't say that. I, no, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I, no, I don't think that's Peter. It's not the Peter we find. And he was like, yeah, that's who I am. That's what I feel like. I feel like a rock. A few days later, Jesus comes along and says, hey, follow me. To his brother Andrew, to James and John. And, and so they do. They leave their business and they follow Jesus. And this is the beginning of Peter's adventure. And it's gonna be a really wild next three years. And a lot can happen in three years. A lot's gonna happen in three years. Peter's gonna become the leader among the disciples. One minute we're gonna see him flying high. The next minute we're gonna find him crashing and burning. For example, the disciples are in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. All of a sudden, this storm comes up. I mean, it's wild. I mean, it, it's, it's just, it, it's horrible. I mean, lives are at stake. I mean, you don't want to be out there in the boat in the Sea of Galilee when these winds and the rain and all of that. And so they're kind of freaking out. They're kind of scared. And all of a sudden, somebody sees somebody coming at them and, you know, on the water and they think it's a ghost. So they're freaking out. And, you know, their, their ability to rationalize and be logical, you know, they're just overwhelmed with all this emotion. They're afraid and they're freaking out. And, all of a sudden, they recognize it's Jesus. Jesus said, hey, it is I. Don't be afraid. And they see Jesus walking on the water. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And Peter, though, Peter's first instinct, what was it? He looked at Jesus, and he saw him walking on the water. And Peter's thinking, well, that's pretty cool. Hey, Jesus, invite me out. I want to do it, too. And Jesus says, hey, come on out. 
And so Peter begins to walk on the water and I just imagine all the other disciples, they're like elbowing each other. and was like, I told you, you should have said something. I know I should have said something. And they're all kind of feeling bad about, you know, there's Peter, he's walking on the water. But then what happened? Peter got distracted. He started paying attention to the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden he began to sink and he panics. And he says, Lord, save me. And the disciples are like, sure glad I didn't go out there. And now everybody's kind of feeling good about it. And so he helps Peter back in the boat. On another occasion, to show you how he shines bright and then he burns out or he flies high and then he crashes and burns. One day Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And the disciples at, you know, answered the question and then Jesus said, who do, who do you say that I am? And guess who was the first one to speak up because Peter's always confident. Peter says, I'll tell you who you are. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus said, you are absolutely right. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. And, and the other disciples, I just imagine because they were so territorial and they were so competitive and they're just over there looking at each other and was like, he's never told us we've got a revelation before. Peter gets a revelation from God and and so Jesus, he celebrates Peter with this moment. He says, you're exactly right. And God in heaven has revealed this truth to you, Peter. A little while, same chapter, five breaths later, Jesus begins to loop his disciples in on what's gonna be happening in Jerusalem with the end game. And it says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hand of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law that he would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And so he's telling them all this. And he says, but Peter, but Peter, listen, get a, get a, get a load of this. He took Jesus aside. He like interrupts Jesus. Jesus mm -hmm. I, I hate to interrupt what you're talking about, but would you step with me for a moment? Could we step over here? And he began to reprimand him. Jesus is being reprimanded by Peter. Peter is reprimanding the sinless, darling son of God. That's Peter. And now it's become clear to many of you, you did marry Peter. <laughs> because they would reprimand Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. But he's reprimanding Jesus because he thinks he knows best. This is, this is Peter. This is how strong he is. And he says... Heaven forbid, this will never happen to you. The things you're saying, you're wrong. This is not gonna happen, I won't permit it. And then Jesus turned to him and said, get away from me, Satan. Now I'm just gonna tell you, that's gonna leave a mark. And that's gonna be hard to forget, but let me tell you what, Peter's gonna go forward because you know what Peter's still convinced of? He's still convinced he's right. And someone may call you names and somebody may say some things at you that insult you, but when you believe you're right, it doesn't, doesn't stick to you as much. You're gonna find out he still doesn't think he's wrong. And I just wanna show you one moment, hey, my father in heaven has revealed this to you. A minute and a half later, hey you, get behind me Satan. This is Peter. It's the extremes of this is, this is wonderful, this is incredible, what a guy. And then. Get behind me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. This is incredible. Peter's all over the place. From revelation from God to Satan. I mean, he's all over the place. This is how he lived his life. And then you go to the night of the Passover and Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and it's gonna be a really emotional goodbye and Jesus is gonna say lots of incredible things to his disciples that night. He's gonna be betrayed later, he's gonna be arrested, he's gonna be crucified the next day. He knows this is the last time they're all gonna to be together like this and so he says to, them, says to them things like a new commandment I give to you that you love one another guys like I've loved you. He tells them things like John 14, hey let not your heart be troubled, if you believe in God, believe also in me. Everything that we read about in John 13, 14, 15 and 16, that's what Jesus is talking about in the upper room and it's also emotional because he knows this is, this is my last time with these guys like this, so he washes their feet. And after he washes their feet, the disciples are talking among themselves and then Jesus, he's not finished and he, he looks at his disciples, he says, guys, I'm only gonna be with you a little while longer. And I want you to know where I'm going and what I'm about to do, you can't go with me. And of course, Peter says, we can't go? Where are you going? 
Why can't we go? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you can't follow now, but you'll follow later. And nobody knew what he meant in that moment. But Peter still doesn't like Jesus's answer. And so he pushes it a bit further. And Peter asked, and he said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Wherever you're going, I'm going. If you think you're laying down your life, I'm gonna lay down my life as well. That's, that's who I am. That's what I'm signed up to do. That's how I'm built. But then Jesus answered and said, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, Peter, you're gonna disown me three times. And not only that, Jesus says, all of you disciples are gonna desert me in some shape, form, or fashion because the pressure of the next few hours, it's gonna break you. And you're gonna scatter. And in your own way, you're all gonna desert me. And Peter listens to this and he doesn't like it. It doesn't sit well with him. And, and he just can't see how any of this could be possible. And he's not gonna let it happen. So Peter, he's not finished. He declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I won't desert you because, you know, in Peter's mind, it's like, yeah, I can, I can see Andrew. That's my little brother. He's weak as water. I can see him doing it. <laughs> Matthew, tax collector. I mean, he was a traitor from the first day we met him. I can see it. Even if these other guys do, I'm telling you, that's not who I am, Jesus. His self-image is wrapped up in this. His identity is wrapped up in this. He's not blowing smoke either. This is not a BS artist. This is a guy who believed it. He felt it. Everybody else may do this. I will never do it. That's not who I am. That's not how I'm wired. It's not what I'll do. Because Peter saw himself different than everybody else. He saw himself a cut above everybody else with a different code, with a different kind of spine, a different head on his shoulders. And he just saw himself as different from everybody else. And he was willing to wager everything that he would be in prison for Jesus and that he would be even willing to die for Jesus. I mean, after all, he'd walked on water. After all, he'd seen Moses and Elijah up on top of the mountain. He'd seen people healed. There's no way he's gonna disown him. There's no way he's gonna desert him. And then Jesus looks at him again and says, I'll tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. It's like, no, Jesus, you don't understand. Even if I have to die with you, I will never. I'd never do that. I'm not capable of that. Some people, they may be capable of that. I'm not. I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. And here he is still arguing with Jesus. And so Jesus leaves, takes them to the garden, asks them to pray, Peter, James, and John. Three times he comes to them and they're asleep. And he says, oh, your flesh is willing, but your, you know, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And while they're praying, the temple guards show up and they've got torches and swords and there's Judas and he comes up and he kisses Jesus and betrays him and the leading teachers of the law and the chief priests, they order the guards to arrest Jesus and, and in the moment of surprise and chaos and emotion, I mean, for a moment, just kind of all hell breaks loose there in the garden. And there's Simon, this is how he is. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest slave. I mean, he's still fuming about all the things Jesus has just told him. And here's a knife-toting redneck from Galilee. He's got a knife in his pocket, and his first instinct is, I'm taking somebody out. And Jesus said, put away that sword. You can't stop this. And they take Jesus to the house of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest and the high priest emeritus, and it says that Peter followed afar off. He's shaken, he's rattled, he's afraid, he's caught off guard. There's a whole set of events that he, he just doesn't know how to process it. And none of it feels real. It feels like a dream. It's, it's like a nightmare. So Peter gets to the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. The chief priests are there. The Sanhedrin is an emergency session. Crowds have begun to gather outside. And a young girl comes up to Peter and says, aren't you one of his followers? And he says, I am not. No. <laughs> no, I'm not a follower of his. Who do you think I am? A few minutes later, you know the story. Another person comes up and says, aren't you one of his disciples? 
No, I'm not. I'm not a disciple. I'd never be a disciple. No, absolutely not. And a few moments later, a third person says, I think I've seen you with the Galilean. It says that Peter cursed and said, I don't even know the man. And Luke says, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And not only that, but the Lord turned the proximity of the courtyard where Jesus was, where Peter was. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And it says, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. When Jesus looked at him, no words needed to be spoken because Peter in that moment realized, oh my God, oh my God, I did the very thing I said I would never do. And it must've felt like a ton of bricks. It must've been like a gut punch and the pain, it had to have been bone deep. And he went out and he wept and he shook and a flood of emotions came rushing over him like a tsunami. Remorse and anger and disgust and regret and disbelief and dismay, despair, embarrassment. And he wept and he shook and he wept and he shook. And he hated himself. He hated himself for what he had done. He never thought it would happen. He never thought that he was capable. And he's in the gutter. And he's thinking, who am I? I'm not who I thought I was. What have I become? How did I get here? And he's beating himself up and he's beating himself down. And here's my question. Have you ever been there? Because Peter's there, and if he could rewrite the story, he would. And if he could undo it, he would. And if he could unsay some things, he would. The thing that he said he would never do, he's done it. He made a promise, and he broke it. It's the worst moment of his life. It's the greatest failure of his life. He can't change it. He can't edit it. He can't forget it. He let Jesus down. He let the others down but he has let himself down. He doesn't even know who he is anymore. And he weeps bitterly. Jesus is condemned to death and the next morning he's taken to Calvary and he's put on the cross, but there's no record of Peter ever being at the cross. And I get it, I get it. Why would he? Because in moments like that, you know what we wanna do? We wanna run away from the people that remind us of our failure. We wanna run away from the people that remind us of our disgrace. We wanna, we wanna run away. Distance, we think is our friends. So we drift off into despair. We drift into a distance that helps us cope. And that's where Peter, he doesn't wanna be anywhere around that. And then the news comes to Peter late that afternoon on Friday that Jesus is dead. And how crushing and devastating. For Peter, I imagine, everything felt hopelessly irreparable and utterly final. Hopelessly irreparable and utterly final. He had failed, it was public, and Jesus is dead. No chance to make it right. No chance to say I'm sorry. No chance to beg for forgiveness. His heart shattered. He's beating himself up, he's beating himself down. He sees himself as the worst person in the world and he keeps reliving it and he keeps reliving it and he keeps reliving it and he keeps on punishing himself and punishing himself and punish. And that was all weekend long. And then Sunday morning comes. And it says that the women on the first day of the week went to the tomb and they found the stone rolled away. And an angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. You need to go tell his disciples that he's been raised from the dead. But then they added something. They said, not only go tell his disciples, it gets me every time, but go tell Peter. Because he's in a bad place. 
He's in a dark place and all of heaven knows that if anybody needs to know that the tomb is empty, Peter needs to know that the tomb is empty and he needs to know what that means. Peter's gone fishing. And while he's fishing, trying to forget everything, trying to cope with it all, he hears a voice from the shore and he recognizes the voice. And he jumps in the water and he swims like an Olympian to get to shore because he knows that voice is Jesus. And he has breakfast with Jesus. And then Jesus says, let's go for a walk. And Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus doesn't scowl. Jesus doesn't yell. Jesus doesn't make Peter feel worse about himself. He gently puts his finger on what happened and says, Peter, all I need to know is do you love me? I don't need an explanation. I, I, don't, I don't need you to beg. I, do you love me? That's all I wanna know is do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And in that moment, he restores Peter as though nothing had ever happened. No penalty to pay, no strings attached. All weekend long, while Peter was regretting his sin, Jesus was paying for his sin. And there on the seashore of Galilee, his guilt gave way to grace. The mess that he caused gave way to mercy. Beauty started to rise up from the ashes. And he realized, Peter began to realize that Jesus had taken away his sin and that there was no need to hold on to the sin that Jesus had died to take away. That Jesus was offering grace and mercy full and free and there was no reason to withhold it from himself. And he goes on to lead the church. And after the resurrection, nothing felt final, nothing felt irreparable, and nothing felt hopeless. Nothing. Peter learned that he was in his worst moment. He wasn't gonna be defined by his greatest failure. He realized that his sins had been taken away. They had been blotted. They had been forgiven. They had been forgotten. They had been buried in the sea, never to be brought up again. And I think if Peter were here, Peter would say, if you could only understand if you could only see what Jesus sees when he sees you, and he doesn't see your failure, he doesn't see the disgrace, he doesn't see that moment, what he sees is the righteousness of his son because there is no sin to see. He took it away. He paid for it in full, freely, forever. He has given you grace. Do not withhold it from yourself. Do not refuse yourself mercy. Forgive yourself even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Remind yourself you're loved. You're accepted. You're chosen. You're forgiven. So stop trying to pay for what's already paid for. Quit reliving it. Quit beating yourself up and beating yourself down. There's beauty beneath those ashes. There's good coming from the bad. There's lessons to be learned. Things are gonna be stronger because of it. You're gonna be sharper because of it. You're gonna be able to help somebody else because of it. And all he wants to know is, do you love me? Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts. Let today be the day that some of us get set free. It's a key that only we have. And may we put the key in the jail cell and walk out today, forgiven. Knowing that we're forgiven by you, but more than that today, this is the day we forgive ourselves. This is the day that we lay it down. This is the day that we believe what you say is true about us. It is true about us. Today we step into freedom and joy and peace. And we leave behind what needs to be left behind once and for all. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, let's stand together and sing.